Hi, I'm Ruthie Shah and this is my podcast, Have You Thought About? Thank you for joining us for season two. Now, I'm a writer and I love to find out about what passions people are pursuing and also what makes them tick. The podcast is for those who are reckoning and tired of being told you can just have this one focus, only one thing that makes you you. In each edition, I'm chatting with someone who breaks these lines and who's managed to fit things together in their life or profession that you might not think of as an obvious match. You're about to hear me chatting with Doreen Cunningham, author of Soundings, Journeys in the Company of Wales, an amazing nature memoir with a special focus on Wales. Now, you've been on a bit of a journey over the past few years, so tell us a little bit more about how your wonderful memoir, Soundings, Journeys in the Company of Wales, came about. And also, as part of that, what is it about Wales that you find so mesmerising? Well, I think they're spectacular beings. And I grew up in Wales and then in the Channel Islands. I was an island child, so the sea was everywhere. There were things about my childhood that were difficult. One of the things that my dad did, my mother suffered from depression, basically, was take us to the sea a lot. He'd grown up mainly in Jersey, also Wales and Jersey. And so I spent a lot of time in the sea floating around in there, learning to swim, getting bashed in the face by waves, struggling to get out, you know, if I got caught by the undertow. And the sea was equal to the land for me as a child. And I couldn't help but wonder about the communities that lived in it. And whales were around in the sort of mythology that I was reading about. My mum's Irish Catholic. She gave me a children's Bible very early, included Old Testament. And there was the story of Jonah inside the whale, having a bit of a rough time. So a bit of identification that there and how the whale sort of almost saved him from himself. So they were there and they were, to be honest, much more spellbinding than any unicorn could ever be, these giant fantastical beings that sang and danced in the sea and with the sea so visible and so audible in my childhood and such a comfort to me they became a focal point which helped me later on as well. With this particular book it's a memoir and you took a lot of risks and you outlined them within the story to go on this journey is that also something that's been quite a significant part of how you think, how you act. What happened? Well, yes, I'm quite impulsive and I am very stubborn. That's something that was told to me when I was very little. I like to call it persistent when I'm applying for jobs, but there we go. What had happened was I had become a single mum and I had basically fallen out of my life. I'd ended up in a hostel for single parents in Jersey with not really any way of seeing how I could get out of that hostel. Very expensive to live in Jersey. I'd used up all my savings on going through family court. I was trying to work around my baby when he was asleep, um, doing sort of freelance editing work. And this was after a period of privilege when I worked for the BBC. I had travelled the world as a journalist. I had spoken to lots of people. I'd felt like I had agency. And although it was in this big structure, I had, you know, experienced a lot of benefits. But all that disappeared because I wasn't well paid enough to pay for childcare. The job kind of became unattainable. My experience meant nothing and I had to find a new way of being in the world. I made great friends in the hostel, but it was also a difficult place to be. 
And I was there for about a year, I think, becoming more and more depressed and frustrated and less able to imagine what kind of future I was going to be able to give my son. And also in a fairly conservative society, I really felt I was lacking in Jersey. It was held up to me every day. There's a lot of wealth in Jersey. And I had managed to provide him a home, managed to give him another parent. And I was full of grief, really. And so this is when I sort of reached out to the whales again. I was trying to work one night. He was asleep on the mattress beside me and I was there hunched over my laptop and I just had quite a bad day. And I decided to give myself a break. So I went and started to read about whales. And there's this one incredible David Attenborough clip that I still love to watch where he's there chatting on his little boat and then a giant blue whale emerges out of the sea and it is just enormous. A runway is the only way I've ever been able to think of describing it. It's just so enormously huge. And then I started to read about bowheads, with which I have some history, having spent time living in the Arctic with a family of Inupiaq whalers, where I was very much welcomed into a family, fell in love and didn't want to come back. This was one of the amazing experiences I had while working for the BBC. So I was reading about bowheads and then just happened on an article about grey whales, which I didn't actually know anything about, despite being a whale nerd, because they're a little bit less charismatic than some whales outwardly. You know, they're not as big as blue whales. They're not as exciting for tourists as humpbacks. They don't jump around and do those displays and they're not as gorgeously uniformed as the orcas as killer whales they're just gray they're medium-sized they're a bit knobbly a bit ugly but what I discovered was that they do this incredible migration every year the mothers and calves by themselves from the birthing lagoons of Baja California in Mexico all the way to the Arctic to Arctic Alaska where I had previously been. And that's where they like to feed on the benthic bottom-dwelling amphipods, little crustaceans. That's their preferred food source. And when I read about this, I just felt absolutely called. Firstly, there was a reason to take Max, my two-year-old, because I read that in the birthing lagoons, the whales come up to the boats and bump them, the mums and babies together. And I was like, great, I can show him, you know, what the world is about. It's not about being stuck in a hostel. It's about wonders that we live among. And then, yes, when I'd realised that they do this epic journey all the way back to the Arctic, that's really what called me. And from then on, it was involuntary. And as a a producer, having produced and traveled around a lot, you know, organizing a trip meant nothing to me. That was kind of second nature. I could do it without thinking about it, which was very good, really, because if I thought about it, I might not have had the courage to go. (laughs) So that's how it happened. It was on a not on a whim, exactly. A number of things converged, let's say. But the thing is, Doreen, you didn't just think about it. You took that action. I mean, as you say, not everybody would do that. What is it that is inherently within you that thinks this is so important for my son, for the readers as well? Because that's the other thing. You then wrote about some quite vulnerable moments. Why, as a storyteller, as Doreen, has it been so important for you to share that story with the world? That's a really interesting question. And I had never thought I would make it into a book. I hadn't actually realised it was a particularly unusual thing to do until I started to write the book and had some conversations with editors, particularly this wonderful US editor I had, Valerie. Lucky enough to have two editors, one in the UK and one in the US. And Valerie was like, look, you're not taking me with you. I don't understand why you would actually do it. She had the same question as you, Drusy. 
But I had been motivated to write the book from basically from seeing scientists crying on TV. So I worked in climate myself before I got into journalism. I got into journalism with very lofty hopes of being able to help start a conversation about science, inform people about science so that we can make informed decisions as communities going ahead. Obviously, that didn't happen in the machine that is the media. Although I met people doing absolutely great work, I felt rather disillusioned with any impact I'd managed to have. I had one child when I did that journey, obviously Max. I now have three. I had baby twins and I was at an absolute loss as to what I could do in terms of climate. Having already given it my career and felt like I'd got nowhere, I was in a state of huge grief, actually. So I thought, well, if I look at my life in a certain way, It's all about climate. Growing up on an island, that very intimate relationship with the natural world. My dad was a biologist and relationships with animals were forefront in my in my childhood. They were my best friends. And I went from there into learning about science so I could weave in science. But then, as you say, I spent more than 20 years learning to be a storyteller And I wasn't just going to throw science in people's faces. I didn't want to be sanctimonious, didn't want people to feel lectured to. And I just know that for me, as someone with a very short attention span, in order to be pulled through any sort of work of science or history or works containing that, I need a strong personal story to carry me. And I thought, well, if I give this book all of the most vulnerable bits, you know, all of my mistakes, all of my flaws, if I'm honest, and I use all the difficult things that have happened, it might just be enough to pull people through really a very emotional ride, a story about how climate has unfolded over my lifetime. And when I say climate, I don't mean CO2 levels, because climate is in everything yes the co2 celebrity graphs do make an appearance once but the main issue is climate justice and colonialism and how colonial violence has shaped where we're heading now by you know separating people from their relationship with the land and the impact it has on women and children and the most vulnerable indigenous people how they are affected most people who don't have enough to live on and how really the only place I can look to and this is a lesson that I drew both from observing the whales during my journey and learning from them but also from the experiences that were so generously given to me by my Nupiak family the Kaliaks in Ukyavik in the Arctic years earlier I just learned that community is everything the Irish Times very movingly for me called it a rallying call for love. It's a rallying call for love and for community in this time of crisis, drawing on the lessons that I learned during those two journeys in the book. And picking up on that, there is a lot of focus on language and Indigenous terms and making sure that you're using, I guess, the appropriate terms. Why is that so important for you to have included that. It's not the only way. But to be honest, when I started writing the book, I, th- I thought, I, I don't know if I have the right 
to write about uh, this culture that isn't mine. So I sought permission. I spoke to the family and I spoke to people in the community all the way along. I got a lot of help. And I also very much stuck to my own story. I didn't delve into the story of others. And another thing I felt was really important, well, a couple of things actually. One was that I was the most exposed all the way through it wasn't fair to write anything about other people unless you know I was the one bearing all and kind of the most at risk really from the book being published and the other was that if there was indigenous stories or, or knowledge that was in the book I needed the person to be there telling it so Julia will tell a story or Van who helped lead the whaling crew I was in is there talking about his views and I'll never take something and just put it on the page abstractly it belongs to someone and as long as they're okay with me having them there on the page then I think that that's good enough and yes I really wanted to focus on the language that I had been taught so for instance with the bowhead whale in Inuit culture, whales and animals, they're seen as relatives and they're addressed directly in language. There isn't a kind of catch-all term for seal. There are words for each species of seal. Their personhood is addressed and there is a lot of very strong ritual around the hunt, which makes it about sharing, which makes it reciprocal and which implies a huge respect for the natural world and not taking more than you need. And, and sharing is really at the heart of it. The, the whale is thought to share its body with the community so the community will survive, but it's thought only to come to the people who are the most deserving and if you don't share, you're not going to get a whale again. That's the belief. So that initial sharing holds up this entire kind of spiritual and community of a people in that shared belief and belief about sharing. So I wanted to use words which, as you said, showed that ours isn't the only way of relating to the non-human world. And with the bowhead whale, Bowhead refers to the shape of the jawbone. It's a whaling term. Balena mysticetus, which is the scientific term which also appears in the book, that implies a hierarchy of life based on the laying classification of life. And arvik is the Inupiaq word for the bowhead. And I use that wherever I can because for me, and I hope perhaps a little for the reader, it opens up a different world, a different way of seeing the animal because it's an individual. It has its own name. And in Inuit language, there is no word for it. And I just wanted to try and share a little of what I had been taught when I was there and found that, you know, perhaps language was a way of starting to do that. That relationship that you have with non-human beings, why is it so important for us to give due respect to the other creatures that we share this world with? There's the obvious environmental argument about biodiversity life and that we depend on them, that if the ecosystems are heading for collapse, so are we. We are animal. We're not separate. We're part of that world. But there's a sort of wider one for me, which is that we all grew up together. We evolved together, each into our little niches, and we don't know what they know. So the bowhead whale, it can live for more than 200 years. One of the biologists in the book, he's a renowned Arctic whale biologist, Craig George, he 
was allowed to take samples from landed whales and he found a very old harpoon head embedded in one of them which proved that the whale was more than 200 years old you know they have their own cultures they have their own relationship to each other and I suspect that whales live more in community and when I was doing the grey whale journey the strength that they gave me first of all in the birthing lagoons where we first met and patted them that was a place of slaughter in the 1800s those whales have recovered from extinction near extinction twice they also used to behave very aggressively towards humans in those birthing lagoons but at some point in the 70s one whale approached a fisherman called Francisco Majoral Pachico he was really scared he kept trying to get away from this big female grey whale but she kept approaching him and just staying by the boat watching and eventually he reached out and touched her and that was the kind of peace treaty if you like the birth of this phenomenon which the tour groups called the friendlies and which my son and I experienced so magically when we went there the whales will come up they will bump the boats they will play with them what I observed was that the mother whale was kind of checking out the boat and then the baby came up and so there was a lot there about play about enjoying the moment about overcoming trauma but grey whales have bigger behaviours which are really interesting and which we can learn a lot from. I don't see the non-human just as victims in this whole story. I see them as our possible saviours, if you like. So grey whales have survived previous ice ages because they are so flexible in what they eat. They adapt really well to change. They deal very well, perhaps genetically, because of genetic reasons, they deal very well with stress. And one of the things which is happening now, there is a grey whale die off going on, which is thought to be linked to lower amounts of food availability in the Arctic. As those waters warm, the amphipods that I mentioned earlier, there are less of them. They need very cold water to survive and to be abundant. And a lot of the grey whales that are washing up dead on the beaches along the migration route show signs of malnutrition, of starvation. But there is one whale that I learnt about who has been observed in the waters of northern Puget Sound by an incredible biologist called John Callumbachidis. And she has been nicknamed Earhart by researchers after Amelia Earhart. And what he and his team at Cascadia Research have observed Earhart doing is leading other whales to a new food source. This is part of the way up the migration route. They're feeding on ghost shrimp near the shore. And it's very risky for them to feed on the ghost shrimp. They have to go into the intertidal zone. So if they misjudge direction or timing, they could get stranded. They could be hit by boats because they're closer to shore. In fact, Earhart has been hit by a boat. She has scars. And there are higher levels of toxins in the mud. So they're taking a risk, risking their lives, really. But what they're observing every year is that more and more whales are joining this group of whales, which is called the Sounders, and of which Earhart is one of the founding members. They're coming in very poor condition and they're leaving in better condition. So if you look at all the stories that are held in the book in Soundings, there's the story of the oil industry and of the birth of climate doubt or denial in the oil industry boardrooms when I was a child in the Channel Islands and that kind of grows throughout the book when I'm a journalist I'm meeting it with the deniers on air not really understanding what's going on I'm propelled to the Arctic to try and find out what's going on and then at the end 
we now know about denial, it's still there. And now it's sometimes it's delay as well. It's not always as easy to disentangle, but there is an enormous amount of money behind it. But you have that power. You also have the power of community and you have Earhart. She's one whale making a difference for her undersea community in this moment. And I find that very inspiring. Wow. You say earlier you've come from a science background, you're an engineering graduate, you've been talking about climate change for such a long time, you're using the stories of the whales to help a lot of people understand as well, something a little bit more relatable. But one thing I really want to find out more about is how do you cope with what can sometimes be the loneliness of being a minority voice? Wow. I don't know if I can answer that, Drutie. That's fine. I need to think. I guess I, I, I just keep trying. I mean, when I was in the in the newsroom, you know, questioning the fact that deniers were on air, wondering why, trying to talk to editors about it, trying to get climate on air more, I kept asking questions and that's what took me all the way to northern Alaska. There's no easy answer to that, but there are communities who are building. And I suppose that's it. I mean, part of being isolated at home as a single parent is that a lot of my time is spent working or uh, communicating with people online. And it is a place where you can, as well as terrible news, which I try and avoid, to be honest, I try and avoid that. Don't watch the news anymore. It is a place where you can build community and where you can see that there are so many people around the world working in different ways in science, in community building, in politics, to get different stories heard and to change our overall story. Seeing that helps me. And I also just try really hard to build community wherever I am. I'm not a mother. Who knows what's going to happen? But having read the book, it made such an impression on me. And when I recommend it to people, I don't just recommend it to mothers. I recommend it to a much wider audience. Understanding that you have gone on a journey where the memoir does talk a lot about motherhood and it does talk about not just your motherhood, but also the whales, also, you know, wider issues. Did you ever expect the audience, people like me, who don't necessarily have those expectations or understandings but yet still feel that it's given me such a strong insight into something that I don't necessarily have access to. I very much hope so and I'm really happy to hear that because it's not just about motherhood. One of the the difficult things about the book is that it's uh, travel, it's memoir, it's science or popular science, a bit of nature writing but I never wrote it to be one of those things. And in a lot of the memoir, I'm not a mother. You know, the main love story takes place when I'm not a mother. So it's the contrast, really, which is interesting to me. And what becoming a mother did was it enabled me to see the world through the eyes of someone whose priority was not no longer just myself. It was someone who was hopefully going to live longer than me. So in a way, my hopes and fears and everything extended my own lifetime. I was no longer the star of my own story. Somebody else was. And it enabled me to reach out kind of as a human mammal to these other communities and see how they were coping with it because I was not coping with it well I 
didn't have a good relationship with my own mum. A part of the book is about um, overcoming trauma in the matrilineal line in my Irish family, which is also a colonised culture. And uh, I had to learn, I had to find a way of being a mum because I hadn't really, I was quite feral as a child. I didn't really have an example. The whales held me up through that. So it gave me this incredible experience of, you know, I, I, I'd, I'd experienced the natural world as an individual. I'd had very important relationships with different animals as an individual. But then becoming a mother made me part of this community of mothers non-human mothers all over the world experiencing the climate crisis and it's yeah opened a window into a source of enormous strength like vulnerability and tragedy but also strength. The wonderful Doreen Cunningham author of Soundings Journeys in the Company of Wales. Do you have an interdisciplinary life because I would love to hear from you and maybe we can chat on this podcast that goes with my newsletter which is called Have You Thought About? and can be found via www.drutishar.com. Please join me next time for a fun conversation with another guest who likes to mix up lots of things in their life. If you like the podcast, do share, rate and review. It's an independent podcast and if you find it helpful, then let people know. Thank you to Reen Shah for the music. <laughs>